Thank you for joining us on this journey to discover more about the English Riviera UNESCO Global Geopark, one of Earth's extraordinary places. In this series of interviews, our patron, Professor Ian Stewart, explores what it is that makes this geopark so special, from when the rocks around us were formed, to evidence of early humans, and right up to artists and writers who are being inspired by the geopark today. So welcome to the, the Geopark in Focus, which is a, a set of videos, podcasts around the English Riviera UNESCO Global Geopark and its importance. It's a, a geopark is only one of seven in the UK, two in, in England, really. And, and this is a place where the, the history is, is written in the rocks. And indeed, the human history is rooted into the rocks. And that's really going to come across in today's uh, session where we're talking about the importance of this area in unraveling the story of, of human history, um, not just in this, this region, really, but, but in the global context. So to take us through this human story of, of, uh, of this region, we're joined by two luminaries. The first is Professor Paul Pettit from the University of Durham, who's an archaeologist specialising in the European Paleolithic Stone Age, to you and me, and particularly the Neanderthals, their, their behaviour, their cultural practices. And the other guest is Professor Chris Stringer, who is the research leader in an human, I've got to get this right, in human evolution at the Natural History Museum. Um, and so the, what we're really going to be focusing on is the critical importance of, of a place right in the middle of the geopark, which is a, a set of caves that turn out to be of, of global significance. Um, Chris, I'm talking, I'm alluding to kind of Kent's Havern here, but it seems to me that if you had a map of the globally important human, you know, sites for human history, um, Kent's Cavern would be on that map. Is that the case? And, and why is that, if so? Mm. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's an important site, both for the British story and for the bigger story, because, of course, we, you know, we know human ancestry goes back probably something like 7 million years in Africa, and humans got into Europe probably at least one and a half million years ago. And they were in Britain, we think, by 900,000 years ago. And what's interesting is once people are in Britain, you know, we've got these different classic cultural stages. You mentioned the Paleolithic. So we got the lower Paleolithic, the middle, <clears throat> the middle Paleolithic associated with Neanderthals, the upper Paleolithic associated with modern humans, people like us. And then there's the Mesolithic and the Neolithic, these even later classical stages. The, the remarkable thing is, I think Kent's Cavern is the only site in Britain that has all of those classical stages in its archaeological record. I think that's true, isn't it, Paul? It is, most certainly. Yeah, so it's really important for that. And it's important even at the beginning of the, the establishment of human prehistory, because, of course, in the middle of the 1800s, there was this huge debate about the antiquity of humans mm. and this argument about whether the biblical time scale was uh, was accurate or not. And Kent's Cavern and Brixham Cave were two important places that established really for the first time that humans were there in ancient times alongside extinct animals. And that was argued about. And Kent's Cavern and Brixham were both important in showing scientifically through careful excavation that humans really were here in very ancient times. 
I think we'll come back to the specifics of Kent's Calvin and, and perhaps Brixham Caves uh, kind of later in the discussion. But I think it's it's fair to say and I, that, you know, over the last decade or so, the story, our understanding of human evolution has, has kind of been transformed. I mean, I had this kind of cartoon version when I kind of last looked at it, and I'm, I'm a geologist, so I'm, it's not something I look at a lot, but there was those two competing ideas, particularly around modern humans, around multi-regional, whether they started in lots of clusters or came out of Africa, and it seemed to be very clear it come out of Africa. It all seemed to be kind of becoming a nice, simple narrative. But it seems like everything's kind of been unraveling, really, in the last 15 years. Do you want to, Chris, take us through some of these headline messages? Mm. So, yes, the story gets increasingly complex and in some ways increasingly interesting, of course. So, you know, in our human evolution exhibit at the museum, uh, uh, at the beginning of it, we've got this array of fossil skulls covering this seven million years or so of human evolution. And if we'd have done that exhibit even probably 10 years ago, we'd have put some reasonably confident lines joining up many of these skulls in ancestors and descendants and now it's much more complex we've got this coexistence of many different kinds of humans around at the same time so even 70,000 years ago which geologically is is yesterday Mm. there were at least five kinds of humans on the earth Mm. Uh, there was us evolving in Africa there were the Neanderthals in uh, Europe and Asia there were uh, there was this weird thing the hobbit homo floresiensis right over yeah. Indonesia, there was a thing called Homo Luzonensis on the Philippines, and there were the Denisovans, people we didn't know about more than 10 years ago, um, living in Siberia and probably much more widely in Asia. So those five kinds of humans were around, and now you know we're the only ones left. So what happened in that time period? And I guess the interaction, and this is something we're going to focus quite a lot on, the interaction between those sets of humans is absolutely kind of fascinating. Yes, so modern humans ultimately must have in some way contacted these different kinds of humans outside of Africa. As humans spread, there was interaction with these humans and very direct interaction because, you know, all of us have maybe 2% or thereabouts of Neanderthal DNA in our genomes. Mm. So our ancestors interbred with the Neanderthals. Over in Eastern Asia and Southeast Asia, there's evidence the ancestors there interbred with the Denisovans. So we're not these totally separate lines of evolution. There was an intermingling when these populations overlap. They did a bit of interbreeding. And, and just before we move on to the kind of European domain, I mean, is it just that we've got more data now? You know, or the, the dating methods have got better and things like in terms of resolving this? Because I imagine there is, must be an element of that, but also the way that we piece together the cultural interrelations is not simply a case of dating something. Yeah, so Paul can come in on the cultural side, but on the physical side, of course, yes, we've got more fossils, including from places like Flores and the Philippines, where we didn't have anything. Mm. Um, But also we've got a richer record now. And, of course, there's DNA evidence, at least for us and the Neanderthals and Denisovans, and that's become so important in, in clarifying a number of the questions, but also raising new questions about how the interbreeding happened and why exactly these other humans died out. And on the behavioural side, well, yeah, Paul, I'm sure, could come in and start talking about the new evidence there. Well, let's kind of switch across, really, kind of bring a focus across onto to Europe and, and and those those early humans there. Paul, I mean, what do you think is the kind of main headline messages that, that people ought to kind of take away from what we know now that we maybe didn't know 10 years ago? 
Well, I think on the biological side, one of the big issues is whether Neanderthals were biologically the same species as Homo sapiens or whether they are merely, uh, if you like, a racially distinct population. But whether or not that's the case, what the levels of interaction between the two uh, groups were, whether they ever met, whether they were in the same areas of Eurasia for the same amounts of time, for any decent stretch of time, and if behavioural innovations went both ways. Ultimately, how did the two think? Were they thinking very similarly? Were they capable of talking to each other, exchanging and so on? So ultimately, this crystallises to uh, a very big uh, populational biological question of were they us effectively and just looking a little different uh, or were they really distinct? So in, t- in terms of... Um when is the the, first, the earliest human or human coming into Europe that we would call the kind of humans? What, what, what age are we actually talking about here? Well, we can certainly say having uh, evolved in Africa and having dispersed as small groups, probably on numerous occasions over the last 100,000 years or so, that we can first definitely recognize homo sapiens groups in the southern latitudes of europe say by about 40,000 years ago perhaps 41 42,000 right. years ago we have some very obvious human fossils cranial remains dental remains from that time that specialists like chris will say no problem mm. homo sapiens uh, the trouble is these remains are extremely rare So we're actually dependent on using what us archaeologists call proxies for establishing the presence of Homo sapiens or Neanderthals for that matter. We have to take the stone tool assemblages usually and make the the observation that, well, when we have Neanderthals, they made this type of tool, as Chris said, the Middle Paleolithic. But when we have Homo sapiens, they made that kind of tool. So if we find those tools, we assume that that's an an indirect indicator of the presence of Homo sapiens. So it's a little fuzzy. uh, And certainly uh, Homo sapiens could have been arriving in some some of the countries of Southern Europe, say by 43,000, 44,000. Neanderthals may have persisted a few thousand years later. So on this fuzzy set of evidence, we have to base our assumptions as to whether uh, the two were contemporary. And if they were, was it a matter of a year or two or a thousand or two thousand years or something like that? So when do we first know about the Neanderthals? When do they arrive on the scene as a distinctive group? Do you want to take that one, Chris? Uh, well, in terms of the fossil evidence, there's this sample from uh, Atapuerca uh, in northern Spain. Uh, the Cima del Huesos, the pit of the bones, has many thousands of fossils in it. And these fossils certainly, they look like they're primitive members of the Neanderthal line. They have primitive features, but also they have some features that we really only find in Neanderthals, particularly in their teeth. Mm -hmm. And this sample is dated at 430,000 years or so. So that means the Neanderthal line was established quite early. And even the DNA evidence, the oldest human DNA has come from um, a leg bone from the Cima del Huesos. And that DNA also looks uh, like it's on the Neanderthal lineage. So it looks like the Neanderthals already were diverging more than 400,000 years ago. And that also sets a divergence, of course, for Homo sapiens, because mm-hmm. this was a, an evolutionary split. And in fact, we think it probably happened 
maybe five or 600,000 years ago, that ancient evolutionary split. And then in Europe, most of the time after that, we have Neanderthals. There's also this species Homo heidelbergensis that's around in Europe. At an earlier date, we have a thing called Homo antecessor around in Europe. But once we get past 400,000 years, the evidence is, you know, give or take a few disputed fossils, it's Neanderthal right through for most of that time after 400,000 years. And when do we think, in terms of the Britain, the, I was going to say the mainland, but of course at that point, for much of it, the mainland, it is part of Europe, it's got a land bridge connected across to Europe, etc. But in terms of those early human species, I mean, when's the frost that we would get in Britain? In, in terms of the archaeological evidence, you know, we've got humans around, you know, maybe 900,000 years ago, and probably we've got 10 separate colonisations of Britain by different human forms. People came and went. Every time it got really cold, probably everyone in Britain died out. And for most of that time, there was a land bridge potentially or actually connecting us to continental Europe. So if the conditions were right, people could come across uh, until we get to the last maybe 150,000 years when the English Channel seems to start making a difference. But before that, potentially people could come and go into Mm. and out of Britain. And we know that there were people here maybe 500,000 years ago from fossils at Boxgrove in Sussex. They've been called Homo heidelbergensis, but you know I'm involved in a restudy to, to see whether that's really justified. Then we've, we seem to have Neanderthals from the archaeology. Swanscombe has a fossil about 400,000 years, the back of a skull, and it looks like the ones from the Cima de los Huesos in Spain. So that seems to be early on the Neanderthal lineage. And then we have Neanderthals at sites like Port Neuf um, and over in Jersey on La Cote de Sembrelad. There are some late Neanderthals until we get to the first modern humans and possibly this Kent's Cavern 4 upper jaw. I think it's at least 35,000 years old and, and maybe older, but that certainly does seem to be, well, that's fragmentary, it seems to be a modern human. And then we have Paviland in South Wales, a burial of a of a... Um, a human maybe 34,000 years ago yeah so I'm fascinated by I'm sure everyone is the kind of Neanderthals that kind of mystique that's that's around them Uh, Paul tell us uh, sounds ridiculous what do we know this is your whole world but I mean tell us you know who are these people and in particular if there's anything that we've learned from them from this 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 kind of Kent's Cavern region Brixham region I guess if we think of the term the archetypical cavemen, that probably conjures up in our our listeners uh, the image of what most people think uh, about the Neanderthals. We know that they were an archaic hunter-gatherer, not quite as modern as us uh, biologically, but pretty much there. They were living in the Pleistocene, the Ice Age, a wild world in which they were dependent on hunting largely the large animals um, for survival. Uh, These are cold, dry, tundra environments, difficult to live in in any way, particularly as a hunter-gatherer. And they were discovered really shortly after people like Mr Darwin made this prediction that people would perhaps find in the fossil record these sorts of primitive humans from which it was argued at the time we evolved. So it's no surprise that when their fossils first came to light in the Neander Valley in Germany, for example, uh, in the mid 1850s, all the remains of their archaeology was identified in caves such as Kent's and Brixham's that 
the Victorians equated them uh, with their own classically derived concept of what a primitive was like. So Hercules is an obvious one. Got the furs, you know, or the skin of the Nemean lion, a club. He's probably dragging his wife by the hair and this kind of thing, you know. So the Neanderthals, if you like, their bones were clothed very quickly with Victorian concepts of um, of what primitiveness were like. Mm-hmm. And they've not quite gone away, that, that Flintstones kind of image. Actually we can tell that they were pretty much as behaviorally and therefore we assume cognitively sophisticated as homo sapiens whether or not we're a different species at the time even to the extent now that we can see that they were producing some form of art uh, which has been something we've often held as being exclusive to our to our own modern groups and so on so living in small groups probably most individuals they they met were biologically related to them living off of the land relatively mobile walking around in search of opportunities to scavenge and hunt these large animals like bison horse reindeer and so on working their bodies quite nastily chris can say more about this but you know you wouldn't get through your 20s really without having broken a bone and lots of arthritis and related issues as you get into old age which is 40s and perhaps into uh, into the 50s uh, as well tool assisted using spears probably good at being thrown relatively short uh, distances capable of wearing decently manufactured clothing so not kind of flintstone style capes and so on probably leggings and something of a uh, of a top and capable of working flint in very different ways for a variety of tools uh, and also carving of materials like animal bone mammoth tusk and so on for similar mm. And they have this kind of reputation, I mean, certainly in the caricature of them being big and brutish and kind of attuned to the cold, really. You know, is, that, is that a fair reflection in terms of their physique and their, you know, what they were environmental, what they were used to? Do you want to do that, Chris? Um, well, yeah, uh, certainly, yes. They, they did exist, some of them, in colder conditions than today. Um, and their body shape is short and wide, which looks like a good physique for cold conditions if you're trying to conserve heat. But of course, yeah, we should remember that they also lived in warm conditions. So, you know, in Italy, maybe 250,000 years ago, they were living alongside elephants and hippopotamuses. Mm. So they weren't just cold climate people. And in fact, there's evidence that when it got really cold, as we said for Britain, they actually disappeared. So they couldn't tolerate really cold conditions. Um, But yes, they were adaptable people. We find them in a variety of environments, and that includes environments colder than the present day, including in Britain. Certainly they were around 50 or 60,000 years ago when the climate at times was, was pretty unfriendly. And as Paul has said, life was hard for these people. You know, it was a lot of wear and tear on their bodies. Uh, life was was a struggle, but amazingly, they got through and they survived for hundreds of thousands of years in these variable conditions. And so, so what, are, what are we learning from the from Kent's Cavern about about them specifically? I mean, what 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 did that kind of throw up yield? Yeah, that's, in fact, maybe Paul can come in on that one. 
Yes, certainly. So uh, there aren't any specifically Neanderthal fossils that have been discovered from Kent's Cavern, but these are exceptionally rare across Mm. Eurasia, so that's no surprise. But Kent's Cavern has a very rich collection of tools made by Neanderthals that we collectively call the Middle Paleolithic. These are very characteristic general purpose tools that Neanderthals were using to tip their spears, mm. uh, to use as general knives, to work, well, to butcher carcasses, uh, to create hide work in this kind of thing. So typical groups or assemblages of stone tools that we know were produced by Neanderthals. So not necessarily the richest set of these in the country, but certainly in times of the time span, that Kent's Cavern represents, probably lots and lots of little occupations by Neanderthals over the course of several thousand years. You know, Kent's is really quite important, but especially Kent's has yielded a small number, about nine, of a very odd tool form. We don't understand that well. We call them leaf points, and as the name implies, they're elongated points of flint Mm. uh, and they take on the shape of a long thin leaf hence the name we know that they were used they were hafted probably as knives but also particularly as spear points as well and from sites on the continent which have a lot more of them but are less well understood actually than the ones in britain like kent's cavern we know that they're very late in Neanderthal existence or very early uh, during the dispersal of Homo sapiens for the first time. So they come right at the cusp, right at the point Neanderthals are, are becoming extinct, um, right at the point our own group uh, is dispersing. So I think most of us uh, would be happy, uh, based on the few fossil associations we have, to assume that they were made by some of the last Neanderthals. Uh, to exist in Europe and therefore they're the calling cards of some of the last survivors in Britain uh, or adjacent areas of the the continent. Now that uh, places them in this, places Neanderthals in Britain at Kent's Cavern and a little bit thereafter um, around 42,000 years ago. Now that is a beautiful little indication of their last hold right up here in the in the miserable northwest uh, of the Pleistocene world. But it's of course relevant too for um, if the dating of this uh, this maxilla fragment uh, Chris mentions is correct uh, for the arrival of Homo sapiens uh, in the UK as well. So nevertheless whatever the case there Neanderthals were persisting to relatively late in their existence this far northwest. So can you paint a picture really of what the, that community might have been like, how you imagine in your, your head? I mean, in terms of their kind of daily practices, their hunting strategies, I mean, it's very close to the sea. Were they also fishing and things like that? Or was it, was it after kind of large, large animals that they were hunting? Talk us through that. Well, if we imagine Kent's Cavern as being uh, is opening onto the high ground, overlooking a, a long coastal plain, the, the coast being, you know, perhaps 20 kilometres more south uh, than it is now, then uh, this puts them in a very typical type of geographical area 
that Neanderthals knew very well. So these big river valleys and big coastal plains would funnel all these big gregarious herbivores that they were dependent on. So one assumes they'd be looking out perhaps on the odd woolly rhinoceros, mm. uh, on herds of bison or the extinct cattle, the aurochs, reindeer at certain times of the year, wild horse as well. They'd be here. Uh, probably occupying the daylit areas of the cave mouth. That's where most of their archaeology comes from. But outside, when the weather's uh, acceptable, uh, in small numbers, probably mixed groups, probably dressed fairly decently in hides, perhaps mm. with some kind of tents or tent-like structures, lean-tos. A few hearths might be lit, little simple hearths, rather like scouts and guides sit around at campsites and so on. They'd almost certainly be talking, uh, perhaps not as sophisticatedly as the three of us are now, but certainly uh, relatively impressively. They would be repairing their spears for the day's hunt when they would probably get up, perhaps go to the plateau on top of the hill, Lincoln Hill, uh, that Kent's cavern is under, scan the horizon mm. for any clues of these big animals and the big meat on the hoof, dust clouds, circling vultures or whatever. Uh, and then they would peg it over there. They probably have to get quite close uh, into those big dangerous herds uh, to deploy their spears, either thrusting them bayonet style or throwing them 10, 15 metres or something like that, not too far. They, there would be a few accidents. Mortality was probably relatively high. There'd be a few of that small group that were limping uh, around uh, and in various for forms of pain. Uh, it it sounds well. like Plymouth on a Saturday night, to be honest, the <laughs> way you're describing it there. It doesn't seem as if we've changed very much at all. But I'm, intr I'm intrigued also the cultural practice. I mean, your specialism is, is burial practice. And, I mean, culturally, you know, it, you were into me, and I think this is, I'll go back to Chris about this as well. It seems to be one of these things about convergence. Actually, the there was more similarities with the Homo sapiens than there was significant differences. And it seems like culturally that seems to be the case as well. I think so, yes. Uh, until very recently, we would have said, well, yes, in terms of their skills at napping tools out of flint and other stones, in terms of carving materials, they're pretty much the same. They're just doing slightly different things, you know. Uh, but the real big difference, perhaps, is the fact that they didn't produce art uh, and they perhaps didn't have anything that we might associate art artistic activity with belief religion rituals that sort of thing but but that really is really is eroding uh, now and they are starting to appear much more similar to, to us even in those extents we have to remember the, this these periods are so remote yeah. i know to as chris said to geologists it's a a, a blink of an eye but forty thousand years archaeologically speaking is a phenomenal amount of time we're lucky uh, that we get any archaeology surviving the the horrible windscreen wipers of the ice age that come down and erase stuff in this country. Um, so you know, a, one new site can rewrite 
our understanding of the behaviors you know and and also i think perhaps no longer but historically we've generalized a little bit too much and we used to see these statements like neanderthals didn't do art neanderthals buried their dead you know this kind of thing whereas now i think rather with chimpanzees we're quite happy to accept a lot of regional variation in behavior and it doesn't necessarily mean anything cognitively uh, whether one group is into doing some kind of art and another group isn't and so on you know yeah. so i think nuancing uh, as 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 chris said at the start you know obviously every new site with modern excavation methods which we can wring so much more from archaeology out of this but also with the de development of methods that we can use to analyze their remains their archaeology and so on put those all together mm. and really we're we're really nuancing uh, our understanding of their behavior now well, i'd like to shift now across to kc4 which i think is fascinating but maybe you should chris explain the context of KC4 and really the, the arrival of the first kind of real clear evidence of the Homo sapiens. Yeah, so this um, this little bit of upper jaw with a, with a few teeth in it was found, uh, I think, 1927 in excavations uh, in Kent's Cavern. And it was known to be probably in an early upper Paleolithic level rather than a Neanderthal level. Um, and... About 30 years ago, I was involved in a, a direct dating attempt um, on the fossils. So a small sample was taken out and the date came out when calibrated as a radiocarbon date, came out at about 35,000 years. So even at that date, that's a very early modern human. And uh, I was involved in a restudy uh, published about 10 years ago, which actually suggested it was more than 40,000 years old. Um, we weren't able to redate it because it would have meant destroying too much of the fossil. But we restarted it and the, the teeth certainly look like modern human teeth. So, I mean, Paul can come in in a minute and obviously, you know, he, he took a different view on it that you couldn't show that it was more than 40,000 years old. So I think this is one where we've still got a, a big question mark over it. it, it I think it's at least 35,000, which would then make it a contemporary of the last Neanderthals. I agree, there's still a question mark over that. And, and this is the key aspect as to what extent there is overlap between the, between the two. I mean, this is right, I mean, kind of at the limit of radiocarbon. I mean, certainly traditional. I mean, I don't know, there's probably modern aspects of radiocarbons that's really pushing it, but it seems like the, 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 it's right up against the limits in terms of dating. Is that, is that right? Yes, and, and so we know that these groups coexisted outside of Britain, and obviously there was interbreeding. So there's no doubt they coexisted or they couldn't have been be any interbreeding hmm. so i think in europe yeah the last few thousand years the neanderthals were around modern humans were around at least in neighboring areas in britain i think we can't yet say whether they coexisted in britain and as paul said these leaf point industries these fascinating ones which are known from kent's cavern um it would be great to know whether they were made by last the last Neanderthals in Britain or, or whether early modern humans made them. But we simply don't know at the moment. But certainly there was coexistence. Whether there was coexistence in Britain, I think, remains to be seen. So 
So let's just take that across the board. I mean, the, the suggestion is at least 35, but possibly into the low 40s, which is then bringing it into an overlap period with the, the Neanderthals. What's your perspective on that? And then more broadly, that interaction that in the European, the wider European domain is pretty clear there is interaction of some sorts. Mm. Yeah, well, I think in terms of the Kent's Cavern jaw uh, frag- maxilla fragment, my, my view is exactly the same as Chris's. I have no problem with it being around 35,000 years old uh, the, the problem i have well I'm, i remain to be convinced by the argument made by colleagues of ours that um that it is forty-two thousand years uh, or older as chris says it's got really no collagen left in it uh, so we can't date it at all well using radiocarbon you know so uh best uh, left that alone otherwise as chris said we'd, we'd end up using half the half the fragment you know to uh, to try to get a date so what has been done instead is that samples that were excavated from the cave in quite a deep section uh have been dated those that uh, were found underneath the human maxilla and those which were found above it so bracketing it yeah. and the argument is that you know obviously those underneath it stratigraphically must be older and therefore give it a minimum age a maximum age rather and those above it must be younger and therefore give it uh, a minimum age the problem is with kent's cavern as anybody who's familiar with this site will know it's tons and tons of sediment and a lot of that sediment has got into the cave in very high energy mud flows basically if we, right. if we imagine storms or perhaps spring meltwater runoff from the hill uh, huge wadges of material sludging into the cave upsetting everything that's lying around in the cave, bringing things in from the valley outside and so on. So this is a a quick way of saying we can't necessarily, with cave sediments, assume that something that's found down the bottom there must have been there before something here, must have been there before something there. This isn't an urban medieval site where, you know, that floor was definitely made before that floor and that, etc. So if you can't conveniently um, expect that, then the whole foundations of this uh, dating by association uh, can be questioned. So those, those are the grounds on which I'd question our colleagues' dating of it. Uh, but the, the issue is, if we, if we go with it, and as Chris says, it's a completely open issue, absolutely, it could be. And in many respects, that's far more interesting than, uh, than if it is around 35,000 years ago, because if it's 42,000 years old, uh, this, is, this first demonstrates a very rapid spread up into the northwest of Europe uh, for Homo sapiens. You know, their cars are operating quicker, if you like, across the, the highways of the continent than we thought. But also, um, it would make them would make this maxilla, this Homo sapiens, contemporary with the leaf points. So that perhaps would... As Chris says, you know, it's still a problem that perhaps would solve the issue and we'll all be wrong in our assumptions that they were made by the late Neanderthals. We'd have to kind of rewrite the um, biogeography we think we know for late Neanderthals on the strength of that. But most importantly, we still have very good evidence of Neanderthals occupying caves in Belgium around the same time, around 42,000 years ago. So it really would 
if not make Neanderthals and Homo sapiens contemporary in the same region, it would make probably Homo sapiens, you know, moving past these Neanderthal territories on their way to Britain. So, but as you're both saying, there is evidence elsewhere of interaction between those two groups. And I wonder what that, the nature of that interaction was. I don't want to get too gory about it or too detailed but I mean I, there's a curious thing that I read about whether they would recognize each other each other as different species I think that cultural how they related and saw each other is, is kind of fascinating to me as a kind of physical scientist is any of you want to pick up on what that might have been like I'm sure we both can from my perspective I think the species question you know it, it, it's it's an interesting biological question but i don't think we should get hung up about it because we know lots of closely related mammal species and bird species do hybridize so mm. for me even though i think there's enough anatomical evidence that the neanderthals can be called a different species i'm not hung up that uh, you know that, that they couldn't have interbred they clearly did interbreed and yeah my dna has been tested and i've got that neanderthal dna too so I'm not going to dispute that, of course. Um, but how they interacted, I mean, this is one of the really fascinating questions and we are going to need some very carefully, uh, you know, calibrated sites to really home in on where they coexisted and for how long. The in supposed interbreeding is reckoned to have happened maybe between 50 and 60,000 years ago. Most of it that, that we have today comes from a period of interbreeding between about 50 and 60,000, according to the genetic estimates. And maybe that means it actually happened in Western Asia mm. rather than over here in Europe. But on the other hand, there is uh, a fossil from Romania, from Oase uh, Cave, which um, does have evidence that it had, and it's maybe 40,000 years old or a bit older, that fossil's got so much Neanderthal DNA that it had maybe... Uh, a Neanderthal relative in the previous five or six generations. So mm. even when the Neanderthals were dying out, there was still some interbreeding going on with modern humans. Mm. So this was not a one-off occurrence in one place. It probably was more widespread. And of course, as I've said, we interbred with the Denisovans, a different group of people over in, in the Far East as well. So how they interacted, I'm sure some of these interactions could have been friendly, but equally some of them could have been unfriendly ones. We know that some hunter-gatherer groups, some chimpanzee groups, if a, if a male group runs low on females, they will go and steal some from a neighboring group. Maybe modern humans did that and they stole some Neanderthal females. That's a possibility. Perhaps um, orphaned Neanderthal babies were adopted into modern human groups. That would also be a possibility. So I think all of these options are open. And maybe in different places, the interbreeding happened in, in different ways. Uh, but I'm sure Paul can come in on this one as well. Mm. Yes, absolutely. As Chris says, I think the genetics is irrefutable uh, in that it shows that some Neanderthal groups were clearly interacting biologically with some Homo sapiens groups at some point in time and in some regions of Europe. And um, I, on the other hand, I don't see any convincing archaeological that is behavioral evidence for interaction between the two beyond that now that's significant and that's not to say there isn't but colleagues of ours who over the last 20 30 years have proposed 
that there is archaeological evidence of the two interacting, perhaps exchanging goods or something like that, have usually based these views on a relatively incorrect understanding of what dates mean. You know, if you date one site to 30,000 and another site to 30,000, there's a big error on that. And you're not really saying those sites were both left on the same day 30,000 years ago so these issues of whether you can demonstrate contemporaneity but also uh, these views were based on I think an incorrect reading of the relevant archaeology very late Neanderthal archaeology very early homo sapiens we don't have a single site left by Neanderthals which has one clearly homo sapiens produced object on it and conversely we don't have a single early homo sapiens site that has a clearly neanderthal produced tool on it we don't have neanderthal burials with homo sapiens tools around them etc etc you know so i think when we take a very hard scientific view when we take if you like occam's razor to these arguments and to this data it seems to me that there's no convincing evidence whatsoever for true exchange or anything like that now clearly as chris mentions the exchange of genes in terms of biological mating is pretty intimate and Mm -hmm. and so on so clearly that was happening and it would be nice to think that they were also ceremonially exchanging uh, weapons you know spears or something like that um but and it remains open but uh, at the moment parsimoniously i think all of the evidence points to the fact that where contact occurred and interaction occurred were areas in as chris says western asia central asia perhaps uh were very brief and left us with this two percent legacy genetically or something like that in other words almost incidental i would say to the to the history of neanderthals have this you've shattered that vision of them coming down to interact on the english riviera coast in the way that those kind of stag weekends or things like i used to do <laughs> several years ago the, the demise of the neanderthals i mean chris has alluded to in terms of our, the ice age kind of really kicking in and how do you see that just kind of playing out quickly and then i'll, I'll get back to kent's cavern but how did he how did we lose them is that paul or me well you know as chris said you know from a human point of view neanderthals remarkably successful they they lived through several hundred thousand years of remarkably changeable climates some periods of which were extremely severe so we can't really say that there was anything basically wrong with their adaptation or their tools or the way they they solved problems uh and i don't think for reasons i've just mentioned about lack of evidence of real contemporaneity that we can say homo sapiens turned up and we simply outdanced and outshot them you know and this kind of thing and i don't think anybody perhaps would now uh so what could have been the case is that neanderthals were for a long time operating at the edge of their limits very small groups perhaps they weren't reproducing as quickly as as could be sensible a bit like gorillas or something uh, in that sense they were often going through periods of reduced populations perhaps nutritional stress you know this sort of thing and then it would just take one other factor uh, to be added to the stresses that they normally um experience to to tip them over the edge now that could be 
competition direct or indirect mm. with emerging homo sapiens groups or something like that but we have to remember too that if from a wider perspective and kent's cavern so important for the animal remains it has that tell us about the pleistocene environment that neanderthals aren't the only relatively large-bodied mammal that becomes extinct around forty thousand years ago species of rhino doing this sort of thing so perhaps there is something broader going on and it's not homo sapiens you know having a blitzkrieg through europe yeah. killing everything they come across chris what's your your take on that well yeah it's, it's similar to paul's really i i think that uh, yeah they were living in relatively small numbers we know from the DNA evidence, because there's, there's a number of late Neanderthals now that have had their DNA sequenced, and it shows that they were relatively low in diversity, much less than modern humans are. So, you know, they were probably, you know, getting by, surviving, bouncing back when conditions improved, and then shrinking back in numbers and refugia uh, when things were bad. And I think the stable climate of the last interglacial, when it was nice and warm, that mm -hmm. disappeared. And by the time we get after 70,000 years, we know that the climate of Europe was suffering repeated uh, rapid changes from relatively warm to bitterly cold and back again every few thousand years. So this would have stressed them. It stressed everything. It certainly stressed the plants and the animals. And I think they hung on. But as Paul said, I think it affected their diversity. It gradually whittled down their numbers. And then, yeah, the appearance of a competing human group um, that's going to be wanting to hunt the same animals, to collect the same plant resources, to live in the, the best sites. There was maybe an economic competition, and that maybe did, did eventually tip them over the edge. But what's even more interesting, looking more widely, is, of course, we've not just got to explain disappearance of Neanderthals, but the Denisovans I mentioned, they went physically extinct, although they live on in DNA. The, the Hobbit in Flores, the Homo Luzonensis in the Philippines, they also disappeared. So it isn't just Neanderthals. There's a wider question, how much were we involved in those disappearances or were these species that were already, in a sense, in trouble, as, as maybe the Neanderthals were? And, and a, a question to, to both of you, really, in terms of, is there still stuff, is there still knowledge to come out of Kent's Cavern? I mean, do you think we're going to be still looking in another 10, 20, 50 years' time at that archaeology to try and reveal some of this story? Yes. I mean, obviously, it's a precious resource. We know that. You, you can't just, you know, a lot of these sites were unfortunately dug away in, in the Victorian era, and there's so much more we could learn from them if we could have those deposits back and re redo the excavations. But what's there now is, is a precious resource. It still does have a lot to tell us. There are parts of the site where I think very careful controlled excavation could still be very informative. And of course, there's dating methods, there's DNA techniques, there's a technique called zooms that looks at, uh, you know, beyond the DNA, it looks at organic material such as in the collagen and it will give you relationships even without DNA. And some of these methods could certainly be applied to a site like Kent's Cabin. What's your take on that, Paul? I couldn't agree more. I think it's uh, an almost unique resource, actually, in British terms. Hundreds of tonnes of sediments left in it that have paleo Enticed to see in archaeology of the lower Paleolithic right through our Neanderthals to early 
Homo sapiens in several phases and beyond. It's an immense cave. It's a terrific cave for speleological research alone. Um, we know, as Chris says, collagen preservation is exceptionally good because it's such a stable microclimate, has been for thousands of years. So in short, it almost certainly has rich archaeology of the period and paleontology in several locations that, as Chris says, would repay meticulous small-scale excavations but the beauty is it's got so much contextual information datable stalactites uh, you know the datable bones themselves the potential for spatial patterning and so on that you know I, I can't think of a British site richer in terms of the expanse of material that could be there and and not wanting to forget what Chris has said that there's an immense Kent's Cavern archive in a number of British museums in talk uh, in London, of course, but but elsewhere, Liverpool have a, a large selection of animal bones from the Pleistocene. And with new techniques like zooms, dating, isotope analysis, you know, really, even without putting spades to sediment in Kent's cabin, we could go on for several decades generating important research, I think. That's fantastic. I, I, I just, I think it's extraordinary that for most people that maybe even live in that region, but certainly pass through the idea that, and you know, they maybe go to Kent's Cavern as a little experience when it's raining outside or something like that. But that notion that that is one of the, the really pristine prestige uh, sites for looking at a whole bunch of things. And you've mentioned several there, but particularly human evolution. I think that would be completely unknown to most of the people who, who live in this area. But I'm just partaken by one of the things that was said earlier on, which I love the idea of those early homo sapiens coming out of Africa and then on that coastline trying to decide which way they go. And a whole bunch of them go to the right and go east and end up in Indonesia and a whole <laughs> bunch decide to go north and end up in, uh, in Devon. And, uh, and uh, well, I don't know. That's, it's, Devon's lovely. So maybe they've made the right choice. But um, <laughs> thank you both for, for taking us through it. It's fascinating. It's great to hear that the research is going to continue in different guises, really. But Professor Chris uh, Stringer and Professor Paul Pettit, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. A pleasure.